I invite you to turn to uh, Psalm 65. Psalm 65, as we continue to look at the book of the Psalms, the Psalms are given to the church to believe, to know, to love, to sing, and to live out uh, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we get to a slightly new section of the Psalter, uh, where there's a focus on mankind, a focus, as it were, on the universal uh, the, the universality of the gospel, the universality of God's redemptive purposes. And we'll see that beginning today and then on in the future with um, uh, Psalm 65, 66, 67, and 68. <clears throat> today we're going to look at the first part of the psalm and then uh, come back to the latter part of the psalm uh, next week, you'll see that there's a distinction here that's made, uh, and yet the two parts are joined together. All right, so we'll do that uh, joining next week. Psalm 65. <clears throat> to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one who, uh, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we seek to draw near to you because you have drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. We call out to you, Father, because you have called us to worship you effectually and with that, Father, internal call regenerating us and changing us. And Father, we ask that as we approach your word, we would see the mighty works that you have done in creation, but especially this morning, the mighty works that you have accomplished in redemption. 
Father, and that we would behold your goodness, behold your mercies. Father, we ask that we would uh, be granted these uh, mercies, even now, and this grace, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The Boja Confession, uh, at its very beginning in Article 2, when it discusses uh, how we come to know the Lord, says that the Lord is known by two books, by two volumes, as it were. And you need both of them to know the Lord. If you had only one of those, it would be enough, but they complement each other and they they fill out the picture of what uh, God does and who God is. And the two books that are so described in the Belgian Confession are the books of redemption and creation. Creation and redemption. Before God is redeemer, he's creator. And he's redeemer because he's creator. Uh, We could put it that way. Uh, He has come to redeem his creation. Redemption is nothing less, nothing short of God's grace restoring back to his natural design, to his creative order, that which he ordained for his creation to have. These two books are here given to us. In the first part, we find redemption, and that's what we're going to focus on today. God's saving work, his saving purposes. And next week, in verses 6 through 13, you, you note there the meticulous description of what God has done. Not in, not in redemption, right? Man isn't necessarily in view in verses 9 through 13, but in creation. What kind of creator is our God? And how are these two books, how are these two volumes related? How are they joined together? We'll put all of that together next week. Uh, For now, I want you to see, with my ever mysterious uh, shortening podium here, um, I want you to see how this psalm reveals God's goodness, God's mercy, God's power, beginning in redemption. We don't know what the occasion is here for the writing of this psalm. Uh, Some people say it may have been immediately after a famine in Israel where there was a a kind of barrenness, a kind of pestilence perhaps among the people, perhaps uh, some crop blight, and and, uh, there was a famine. There was a shortage of food. And, And now the people have received God's goodness and His abundance and His bounty, and they come to the Lord in thanksgiving, perhaps. Perhaps this is written around the time of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is Hebrew for day. Yom is day. Kippur is atonement from the word kafar. The day of atonement. Yom Kippur. uh, Where the people of God extol God's mercies in saving them. in, In covering their sins through blood sacrifices. The blood of animals, of bulls and goats. Perhaps. We don't know. But whatever the circumstance that gives rise to this psalm, we know that God's people are overflowing with praise and thanksgiving for what God has done for them. God has been good, and God has been good to us, is what this psalm says. 
They have been set apart by God and they have been set apart for God. And that's what we find in verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed because you are our creator and our redeemer. We are pulled outside of ourselves, right? To now find our lives not in ourselves, our identity not in ourselves. There's a lot of talk of identity these days, but we find who we are in you. Praise is due to you because you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our lives and it's, it's due to you in Zion. We are the people who have been set apart by God, the people set apart for God, and the people set apart for God and by God in the set apart place, the special place of Zion, which is representative of Jerusalem. But really, it represents where God's people dwell, where they commune with God. And of course, we'll see that that is the Lord Jesus Christ later on. In verse 2, as, as we're beginning to frame this psalm, we see more blessings. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. God is the God who hears prayers. Our prayers, as we've come to God, God has not turned a blind eye or a deaf ear to us. God hears our prayers. God is not like the gods of this world. God is not like like Baal or Asherah in Canaan. God God doesn't have ears, but He hears God doesn't have eyes, but he sees us. Unlike the gods of, the, of this world who have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't hear. God is not far, but he's near. And he's the God, our God, who hears prayers. And then, and then there's an, an interesting thought introduced in verse 2, which we'll get back to in a moment. Uh, to you shall all flesh come. You are the God who hears our prayers, but in in the big scope, in the big scheme of things, in your redemptive purposes, Israel, the ethnic nation of Israel, won't be the only people that offers prayers to God. All flesh shall come to you. All nations shall confess their need of you. All nations shall be welcomed by you and enjoy your goodness. Now you might think, well, perhaps this is very unexpected. The the truth of the matter is that all throughout the Old Testament, we have this universality to God's redemptive purposes. We're told all throughout, you know, as it were, God gives us a a few crumbs, a few clues, a few hints here and there, right? Ruth is included in the covenant. Ruth isn't an Israelite. She's a Moabite woman, right? In the the story of Jericho, the falling of Jericho, we're told that there is a Jericho woman who's included in the people of God. We're told that Tamar, Judah's wife, is included in the people of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, we're told that those who will be in Zion will be not just the faithful Jew, but the believing Gentile. Not just ethnic Israel who believes in God, but all flesh shall come to see the Lord. You see this very clearly, and people say Isaiah quoted from this psalm. If you look at Isaiah chapter 66, at the very end of the book, the last chapter of the book, Isaiah 66, verse 18, verse 20, verse 23. Note what it says there, what God says there. 
He says, verse 18 of Isaiah 66, for I know their works and their thoughts and their, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. God's people will be found throughout the nations. And then verse 23, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Who will make up, who will compose the people of God? By God's grace, it will be the nations, the Jew, right? But the Gentile as well. This should not be, of course, unexpected to us but this perhaps would have been unexpected to God's people and here God is reminding them salvation isn't just for you to be localized to be limited salvation and the hope of God is not a provincial parochial matter it's for the world it's for the world more on that in a moment and then we find verse 3 verse 3 When iniquities prevail against us, you atone for our transgressions. Why is it that we can enjoy, why is it that you can enjoy God's blessings? Why can you enjoy God in Zion? Why can you enjoy God who hears your prayers? Because God has dealt with your sin God has blessed you in the most foundational way possible. Notice notice both halves of this one verse. Verse 3, the first part, when iniquities prevail against me. Sometimes we need to just pause and 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 just let that marinate for a little bit and and conclude, finish that sentence. How would you finish that sentence? When iniquities prevail against me, Sin here is seen as a strong enemy, as a mighty foe. Your your sin prevails against you. You have no counterpunch to sin. The ways in which I offend God and break His law are innumerable. Right? If you were just to take the, the, the law of the Lord, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Right from the get, we, we fall short. We trip at the starting line. Who of us can say we have not worshipped another God? We have not been gripped by an idol this past week. And, and, and then you go on to the second commandment, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and so on and so forth. Our sins mount up against us and they testify against us. How can I, how can you stand before a holy God? I am sinful. My sins prevail against me. And God is holy. I am overwhelmed and undone. I'm cursed by God because of my sin. Who can save me from my sins? Then comes the latter half of verse 3. You, you can save me. You have saved me. Lord, you atone for our transgressions. God, my judge, has become God, my salvation. How? How is this possible? How is it possible that I, uh, who deserve, who am an object of God's wrath, can come to enjoy God's mercies and God's goodness? Because God has atoned. God has dealt with my sin. 
And this is God's undeserved goodness in the first place. That God so loved the world that He sent Jesus Christ to atone for the sins of His people in the world. You atone for our transgressions. This word atonement is an important word, you see. Maybe you've heard of it. It's used somewhat in our culture today. In Leviticus 16... We're told about the law regarding the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the most holy place of the tabernacle and then later on the temple, right? You had the the outer courtyard, then you had the holy place, and then you had within the holy place the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. And there in the most holy place was found the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that's kind of a, if you've never read the Bible, if you don't really understand some of the things Scripture says, that sounds kind of weird, an ark. It was a box. It was a holy box. A a holy box that was uh, commanded by God to be built and covered with gold. And there, in that holy box, was contained, uh, among other things, a piece of manna, uh, Aaron's rod that had... um, uh, uh, grown into a rose bush, was contained in the holy box known as the Ark of the Covenant, the law, a copy of the law. And you see, that law symbolized God's holiness. That law symbolized how separate and how devoted to himself God is and how righteous God is. But you see, that law also symbolized how disobedient you are and how disobedient I am. Because although God is holy, and the law of God reflects His holiness, you and I have broken that law. And you see, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, in the Old Testament, the high priest was commanded by God to enter the most holy place and to offer the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat, and to not only wipe his finger on the holy box known as the Ark of the Covenant, but to sprinkle and really to cover the Ark with that animal blood. Why? Because your disobedience and my disobedience requires, requires our death. But God in His mercy says, I won't kill you. In your place, I'll take a sacrifice. In your place, I'll take a lamb. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when God saw the blood on the ark covering His people's sin, His people's disobedience, God would forgive their sins and remember them no more. You see, that's what happens with Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ is. Everything in the Old Testament, right? All these symbols and the the blood of animals and bulls and goats and lambs, they all point to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus now on the altar, not of the ark, but on the altar of Calvary. The Lamb of God is laid down and He's pierced and He's broken and He's placed there on that altar. And that altar is covered with His blood. And what happens? What happens when God the Father sees His Son's blood on that altar? As that hymn says before the throne of God above, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him 
on Christ and to pardon me. You see, in this one verse, we have the sum of the Christian faith. We have here two things side by side. My hopelessness because of my sin. My sins prevail against me. Your sins prevail against you. And yet, what do we have next to that? The mercies of God for me in addressing my sin, in atoning for my transgressions, and covering me with the blood of Christ. In the cross, you have both aspects. The cross is what you deserve, but you don't receive. What is it that you deserve that you don't receive? Judgment. You should be on the cross. You should experience God's wrath for all of eternity. And yet the cross is not only what you deserve, but don't receive. The cross is what you don't deserve. And yet you still receive, which is what? Salvation, forgiveness, justification, rightful acceptance with God above. Why? Because Christ is there instead in your place, condemned. He stood. And because of Jesus Christ, because God, God, has atoned for our transgressions. We, beloved friend, you can never atone for your transgressions. You can never wash away your sins. You could try to bleach your life. You can't ever do it. God did it. And on the cross, God doesn't destroy me. God doesn't slay me, but he slays my sin by destroying, by crushing his son who takes my sin upon himself. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. Perhaps you're familiar with this text. Isaiah 53 says, But the suffering servant, but he, Jesus Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. If you are to enjoy God's blessings, you must first enjoy that most foundational blessing of them all. The forgiveness of your sins. The atonement of your transgressions. But then in verse 4, we have, we have more blessings from God. Uh, verse 4 tells us, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. If we are to enjoy God's blessings, if we are to enjoy the blessing of God as our Redeemer, yes, we need our sins atoned for, but we also need something else. Verse 4 tells us God must choose us and God must bring us near to him. And when he does, oh, how great is this blessing. How blessed is the one who has been chosen and brought near by God to himself. We have here hints of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. It's not fully developed here. For that, we'll have to wait until the New Testament. Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and Romans 9 and 10 and so on and so forth. And yet the point of this verse is that when you desire to worship God, when you desire to go to God in prayer, to read scripture, to love the Lord, to walk in holiness of life, who is he who is at work in you? It's God. Who is he who is drawing you to himself? It's God. 
It's not of your own initiative. Yes, you're the one doing it. But God, you see, underneath and behind it all is at work drawing you to himself. God is at work in you to make you will and to do according to his blessed will. And you see, this is the ultimate blessing of the Christian. This is our ultimate blessing to be with God forever, to be, to be chosen and to be drawn near to God by God himself, to be satisfied with God forever, to be with God forever and satisfied with the goodness of his house. We're not orphans. That's one of the blessings we have in Jesus Christ, the blessing of being adopted. In Satan and in our sin, we are orphans. We are left destitute because we have chosen this. But in mercy, Jesus and, and the Father sends Jesus and Jesus dies for us. And the Spirit now applies the work of Jesus to our lives to bring us and to adopt us as God's own children. And more than this, we're brought into the house of God. You've never seen God face to face, but God says on that last day, you will see God face to face. You will see the one you hoped for, the one you loved, the one you you struggled to worship, however imperfectly in this life. God says, Psalm 23, 6, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus says, John 17, Lord, Father, I pray that they be with me, they whom you have given to me, that where I am, they would be as well and see my glory that you have given to me before the foundation of the world. This is the blessing, right? And this is the blessing we enjoy in preview, in foretaste, right? It's like an appetizer on the Lord's day, a day set apart to be with God, to be with God's people, to be in corporate worship, away from the clamor of the world, away from the depravity of the sin-sick world, away from ourselves. I mean, who wants to be stuck with their own thoughts seven days a week? to be with the Lord, to commune with the Lord forever. This was the hope of the Israelite. This was the expectation, and this is the expectation of the Christian. This is the future for which God has saved you to commune with God once more, face to face, as Adam and Eve did in the garden. But now we get to do it in Jesus Christ. Now we get to praise God, not, not just for His creative power and His majesty in, in governing the world, but now we get to praise God in a way that angels can't even praise God because of His redemption, because of the blood of Christ that has saved us. And then the blessings continue. The goodness of the Lord. Beloved, behold the goodness of the Lord today. And it continues in verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. God not only hears his people, God answers his people. How? By awesome deeds with righteousness. We pray to God, and and sometimes we think our prayers bounce off the ceiling. Sometimes we think, God, how how can God hear us? God, are you you there? No, God hears you. Verse 2, we serve the God who hears prayers, our prayers. But more than this, verse 5, God is the God who hears and answers our prayers. He is the God who is the effectual miracle worker. 
And He is the God who will put all things back to right as we pray. Hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, God is pleased to do His will on earth as it is in heaven. And God will answer. God will answer our prayers, every single one of them. Either now or on the last day. And you see, the glory here that we see is not only that God is our hope, God is our salvation, but look at the latter part of verse 5. Not only do we need an atonement which is given to us by God Himself and we're brought into the dwelling place of Zion, but now these blessings are given to who? To the world. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. God is not only our hope. He is the hope of all the ends of the earth. Sin has rotted this world and God in mercy has given Jesus Christ, His Son, as the life of the world. Christ is given now for the nations, yes, to His own people, John 1, but His own people didn't receive Him. But now John tells us, to everyone who did receive Him, God gave the right to be called and to be named Son of God. And and you see, we, we need to realize that there are two parallel tracks in the Psalms and really in Scripture. All right? And if we, we don't see this, we're going to lose our, our, our way. <clears throat> God's wrath burns against the wicked. Psalm 5, Psalm 10, other Psalms, innumerable number of Psalms. God's wrath is real. God's judgment, God's justice is real. God's anger is real. God tells us He is angry with the wicked every day. Parallel, that's track number one. What's running parallel to that? Yet God's saving love, God's redemptive purposes include the wicked. God will judge the world. And He judges the world now and especially on the last day. And yet, what's parallel to that track? God reveals His salvation for the world today. The world stands condemned in its darkness, and yet, the world, the world, is given its only hope in Jesus Christ. You see this. You see this in John chapter 3. You know the text. It's the most well-known verse in Scripture. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice what it says in the following verses. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. See how this happens? You see how this occurs in Scripture? Jesus Christ comes, and in his very person, in his ministry, in his work, he brings both salvation and judgment. You believe in him, you will be saved. You don't believe in him, you are condemned already. And that's what we find here, that Christ is offered not as a localized hope, 
We were just talking about this briefly before the worship service. Christ is not the salvation for only certain sinners, a certain class of people, a certain ethnicity. He is the hope of all the earth. It's the God of our salvation. The hope of the farthest seas. The most remote, the, the farthest, the most distant person from God, the most darkened, the, the most lost, the most barbaric culture and person and society has a Savior offered to them in Jesus Christ. This is what God has come to do. God has come to save sinners. And you see this. You see this in Scripture. Saul of Tarsus, right? A Jew, the, the most righteous Jew of them all. Right? With an impeccable resume, we're told in Philippians 3. This guy had obeyed every single law. Right? No one, no one was more righteous than Saul of Tarsus. And yet Saul of Tarsus is saved, redeemed, confronted by the risen Savior. And brought into the people of God. Brought into Zion. Brought under the blood of Christ. And throughout the book of Acts, you see the same. Right? The magicians in Ephesus. The Corinthian idolaters. People in Caesar's household, in the Roman Empire, right? Soldiers, mercenaries, God-saving sinners, revolutionaries. In our day, who's the worst villain? Who's Who's the most vile sinner we can think of, right? The abortionist, the drug dealer, the mobster, the rioter, this person, that person, that class of people, that kind of person, that ethnicity, right? They can never, oh, they can never be saved, you know. I mean, maybe, but I, I doubt it, right? And we, we, we put limitations on God's grace. We put limitations on God's salvation. And yet, God says he is the hope of all the ends of the earth. So that we can have perspective, so that we can have hope. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians Verse 6, verse 9, 10, and 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Judgment, condemnation. Verse 11, but hope. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No sin is too powerful, no sin is too filthy or too egregious that the mercies and the righteousness of God cannot overwhelm and overcome and forgive and wash that sinner. When God draws that person to himself, when that person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see, beloved, this is our message. This is the gospel that is offered to the world. You are worse than you think you are. You think you're fine. You think you're good, but you're not. You're worse. And yet, in Jesus Christ, you're more loved than you can ever imagine. God welcomes all to find true life in Him. How is this possible? How is this possible? How is it possible that a Jew can find God to be a forgiving God, that a Gentile, a a filthy dog, that's what Gentiles were called, can find God to be a merciful and forgiving God? On the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. 
at Ephesians 2 to see how Psalm 65 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There we're told about Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles who were far from God, right? They're, they, don't, they don't follow Moses. They don't know the law of God. And Jews who thought they were close to God. Both of them need the Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, right? So he's talking to Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's telling Gentiles, the law of Moses wasn't given to you. You weren't the chosen people of God. You weren't the, the, the special treasured possession of God in the Old Testament. It was Israel, not you Gentiles. You had no part, you had no place in Zion. And yet, and yet, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both, Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, jump to verse 16. Uh, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility that the law of God had against us, expressed through the ordinances. And so now, Jew and Gentile have an atonement, have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. To what end? To what purpose? Verse 21. In Jesus Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not only do we have the blessing of atonement, our sins forgiven, not only do we have the blessing of now being brought into Zion, into communion with God as our Father and with His Son, Jesus, and His Spirit who dwells with us. But, but more than this, now we get to invite the world into Zion through the atonement of Jesus, which is what Ephesians 2 is saying, that Jew and Gentile now are joined together in the temple of God in Zion, in the body of Christ. And now Jesus tells you, as we conclude, to do what? To go forth with that message. That message of our sins, that message of our condemnation, but that message of our hope in Jesus Christ. Yes, in this world we have no hope. In this world we have nothing to look forward to. But in Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. In Christ, we have hope and hope above hope and salvation. And we have peace and we have adoption. In Jesus Christ, we have every longing. We have the hope of the nations, the desire of the peoples. Everything that you long for that you can't have in your sin and in your wickedness and in your depravity and darkness. You have in Jesus Christ... We look for love in all the wrong places. 
We look for father figures in all the wrong places. God says, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, are you made well? Are you brought home? Are you brought to the one who made you? God the creator. And you're brought to the one who has redeemed you. God the redeemer. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have given us such, such goodness, Father. We can never repay you, Father. That's not why we live for you. Father, we live for you because we love you, because there's no other way to live, because you have brought us into the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we run, we run with all the strength you give us in the way of righteousness. We seek to run in the way of your commandments, Father, and to love you and to serve you and to love one another. And Father, and to serve our mother, the church. And Father, to invite others, neighbors, co-workers, friends, family, into that blessed Zion, into the body of Christ, into Father Christ himself, into communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, help us to be about this witness. Help us to be about this blessed work. For we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.